In the 10th century in China, there was a eccentric monk by the name of uh, Budai or or Hote in Japanese. And I'm sure you know him. He's uh, often referred to as the laughing Buddha. Have you seen those images? You know, the, the bald head, the big belly, the smile on his face. And so the stories go, you know, he was known to walk around teaching the Dharma, loved to play with children, sometimes taking care of the, of the poor. And many saw him as this bodhisattva that was soon to become uh, uh, the future B Buddha, Maitreya Buddha. And his name, Budai, uh, um, Budai, literally means cloth sack, because he always was carrying this cloth sack around with him, filled with goods for others. And as all good kind of Zen stories or Chan stories go, once upon a time, there was a monk who came to Budai and asked him, please tell me, please tell me what the essence of Zen is. What's the essence of this path? Or in other words, what is awakening? And he took his sack and he dropped it, letting go of the sack. And then the monk asked him, great, <laughs> but what next? And Budai picked up his sack and continued to walk. And tonight, this is what I'd like to talk to you about, this skill, the skill of letting go of the sack that we carry around with us, and also knowing how to pick it up, both this, this, this activity of letting go and picking up in a way that serves our freedom, that, that leads to awakening, that leads to ease in our lives. And in particular, what I want to share with you about is a particular sack, the self letting go of the self, and also knowing how to pick that up. Or maybe other words I'd use is how to skillfully be somebody, to have a self, but also to skillfully be able to be nobody. So I think this is uh, so much of the heart of uh, what the Buddha spoke about and, and taught about. And I think one entryway into beginning to get an understanding between this dance of letting go and picking up, or you could say the dance between being somebody and being nobody. The dance between the self and, the, and, and not self. I think an entry into this could, could be utilizing this other teaching that you find comes a little bit later in Buddhism uh, called the Two Truths Doctrine that arose from this Indian sage in the second, third century BCE, uh, Nagarjuna. And I just want to point out, Nagarjuna is, is many people feel, is the, probably the, the second most influential figure in all of Buddhism, behind the Buddha, of course. <laughs> But his writings and his way of thinking about Buddhism deeply influenced, you know, deeply influenced Indian Buddhism. And then it was a foundation for Tibetan Buddhism, spread into China, Japan, Korea. So much of, the, of what he shared really shaped practice and understanding. And I want to share with you these lines that have been... Uh, that really this idea of these two truths arise out of it. And, and it comes from his work, his, his probably his most famous work, the uh, Mula Madhyabhaka Karika, usually translated. One translation is uh, the fundamental verses on the middle way. So this is what he says. He says, the Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths. A truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. 
those who do not understand the distinction drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. Just those last lines again. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. And without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. Two truths. There are these two truths, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. This is the word that the Nagarjuna uses, satya in, in, in Sanskrit, meaning truth. And what I want to point out about what he's saying here is that the Dharma that we practice is based on two truths, not one is true and the other is not. So this is important because so often it can be like, oh, the ultimate truth, that's what's true, and the conventional truth, that's not true. But that's actually not what he's saying. There's something true and important about these two perspectives. Satya or truth in what way? Truth in the sense that it leads to my freedom. It leads to ease in my life, to contentment. So two truths in the sense that that both are essential for this path on awakening, this path of, of freedom. And in the same way, this is the way I'd like to frame this activity of, of learning how to let go of the sack, being nobody, this insight into not self and being able to pick up that, self, that sack of actually being somebody, the utilization of the construct of a self. And it is true, you know, what Nagarjuna is pointing to, there's a lot of nuance and depth to it, which I'm, I'm not getting to. I'm just utilizing this, this teaching to help us get a sense of this idea of, of the importance of being somebody and being nobody. And also what, what I want to emphasize of what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight about this quality of being somebody, being nobody, the self and not self, is, is that uh, the, the Buddha, especially around the teaching around not self, he, he actually wasn't taking a philosophical position. So I'm not here to share philosophy, I'm, I'm here to share practice, a practice that leads to, to our freedom. And it's true, later on in Buddhism, there's a lot of philosophy written about this. But there's such a different perspective that you find in in early Buddhism. And really getting lost uh, in some of these views around self and not self, the Buddha points out is, is not so skillful. So for example, in one discourse, he talks about attending appropriately and inappropriately to our experience. And so he talks about a practitioner attending inappropriately. And and he says, as a practitioner attends inappropriately, you could say these kinds of views arise in them, such as the view, I have a self, arises in them as true and established. Or the view, I have no self, arises in them as true and established. Or the view, it is precisely by means of a self that I perceive the self. Or the view, it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not a self. And it goes on like this. All of these different views. 
The Buddha says, this is what is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a fetter of views. And bound by such fetters of views, a run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, distress, and despair. And then he goes on and he, he explains, how does one attend appropriately? This is suffering. This is the origination of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And points out, this is what leads to, to freedom. I share all that with you to, to point out that the, uh, I want to make sure what I'm sharing tonight really is about this, about how suffering arises and how there's an end to suffering. Something hopefully practical, not just of you. So I want to take time first for this first activity that the uh, Buddha points to, letting go of the sack. Getting an understanding of this perception the Buddha encourages us to take on, this, this perception of seeing experiences, not me and not mine, this, this teaching around not self. And as I said, this is so central. It's you know, as the, so as the story goes, the second teaching the Buddha gave was to his five friends who he'd been doing ascetic practices with. And that teaching he gave them was around not-self. And as all good Buddhist stories go, at the end of the discourse, at the end of offering this teaching to all of them, they all fully awakened. <laughs> So I'm not saying that's going to happen, <laughs> but, it, but it does show the importance of, of, of this teaching. So how is it connected to, you know, our freedom here? How is it connected to easing the suffering in our life? So I want to share with you a, a poem that I think uh, exemplifies this this process. And it's a poem by uh, the poet Virginia Hamilton Adair. Really, a, she was, a, I think, a, such a fine poet. And she used to live in Claremont, California. And Claremont, California was, you could say, kind of below the Zen center I used to practice, practice at. The, the Zen center that I spent, uh, did a lot of my training um, as a monk. And before I was living there, she would come up to do Sashin, seven-day retreats there. And so as a result of doing some of these retreats, she wrote a poem about her experience about being on retreat. Um, that I think also speaks to possibly our experience here. So the title of her poem is Zazen, which you can translate simply just as, as meditation. She begins, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had. And the two casseroles left over from the Dime Dip Supper. But no one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs 
as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one Have you noticed the Saratoga trunk that you brought to retreat, the suitcase that you brought, and what it's filled with? I mean, it's amazing what we carry around, right? And I, I probably, you probably noticed most of those things were not on the to bring list to the retreat. <laughs> But there you were, you bringing them all those, bringing all these things. <coughs> and isn't it relieving that nobody notices what you brought on retreats? <laughs> I'm just so relieved that nobody else is knowing what's going on inside my head. And her list I find so striking about what I can carry on to retreat, don't you think? Chemistry quizzes with Fs. And do you hear how so much of this is about me, about a certain kind of self? Just when you think about our experiences in school and how it shapes so much often one of these shaping factors of who I see myself to be what I'm good at or what I'm not good at. Mind is society. It's been shaped by these things. It determines so often who I am in this confining way. And the other thing that I find so striking, it's sometimes not what we get, but what we don't get. Even the horse I never had those kinds of experiences. And that's the process, isn't it? That the, there are these experiences that I carry around in this suitcase and it feels like that's who I am. And it's such a big load to carry around. It can actually feel so stifling and so confining. And hopefully you heard in her list how those things, how they, how they entangle us with a sense of self. Or we get entangled with identity in a way that actually isn't helpful at all. What a beautiful thing to let go of such a sack. And this is, you could say, so much of how a self gets created and how then we get confined by it. As, as the Buddha says, Practitioner, practitioners, whatever one stays obsessed with, that's what one is measured by. Whatever one is measured by, that's how one is classified. Yet whatever one doesn't stay obsessed with, they won't be measured by that. Whatever one isn't measured by, they're not classified in that way. We get obsessed with the stuff in our Saratoga trunk and we say, oh, that's me, that's mine, that's, that's who I am. And we come by it honestly, don't we? Because so often that's how we're brought up. I remember a friend telling me a, a, a 
really poignant, stark example of this. The, 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 she, she grew up in a family where, um, a big family, and the, the parents were really clear about their children and what they were good at and what they weren't good at. So sometimes there was a, a, one of the, uh, the kids was, was pegged as the musician. But if that kid got interested in, in um, math or at school, they'd be like, no, that's not your field. You're the musician. You're not any good at that. And then the one really good at math, if they became interested in art or in music, would be like, that's, that's not you. You're the one that's really good at academics. And of course, this is the extreme thing. Sometimes in family and society, we're not explicitly told that, but, but sometimes in other ways. And maybe you're aware of this, how, how society and family and community shape what we're seen as is in terms of where we're good or not good. Just these stories. It's this creation of, of a self. And then, and then we internalize that in some kind of manner. And then we do it to ourselves. If you notice that on retreat, it's just it's painful. And then there are these selves that arise, the one who needs to be perfect. The one who's always right, or the one who's always wrong. Or as what Rebecca was saying this morning, the one who's never good enough. The one who feels better than others, or the one who feels less than others. Or the one who's still carrying around the horse I never had, or the chemistry quizzes with F's. I'm hoping you're hearing how this particular kind of self brings suffering. The ouch and the pain of that, that dynamic that was in that poem. I think this is where this, this path and this practice, I think, is so inspiring, is, is that it gives me a way out of that to have some relief around that. What do I mean by this term self? So I just want to be clear. In terms of this teaching of not self, it's, it's, the Buddha is really looking at um, a particular belief in a particular way of relating to experience. It's the belief that believing there's a fixed, static, unchanging thing or person behind experience and behind the experience of the feeling of agency or continuity. And this dropping of the sack is beginning to understand that this self is just a construct One of the images is around this is it's like when you see a rainbow. Well, there's a rainbow. So we see it. It's, it's the experience of that. But, but it's not as real as sometimes we make it out to be. We give more solidity to it than it actually has. You know, the rainbow is, is, is it's a construction that happens with the play of light. And it doesn't mean the rainbow doesn't exist because there it is but it just might not be as solid as we think it is. Or the example that, that uh, Joseph Goldstein gives, which I, I find so helpful, is, is the, the one of, you go out and look at the night sky and you see the Big Dipper. There it is, there's the Big Dipper. There's no Big Dipper up there. <laughs> it's, it's constructed, the mind constructs seeing that. And it doesn't mean that's a bad thing. It's really helpful, right? Like for, for talking about things, but it's constructed by the mind. It's putting those lines together with those stars. And this is a, a, 
a tough notion to get, and I, I just want to point out it's a tough notion because of how language works. You know, so much of how I perceive the world has been so deeply influenced by the language I speak. And, you know, for, for many languages, what makes this so complex is that when we have an activity or a verb, what we have come with that is a subject. So if there's running, then there has to be someone doing the running. We feel uncomfortable if there's just a verb. <laughs> but just because language is like that doesn't mean our experience is truly like that. It's just that we've been conditioned in that way. So yeah, this is a tricky thing to see if we can let go of some of the notions we get from language and get a different feeling sense of how experience unfolds. So the practice of this, this, this first part of letting go of the sack, becoming sensitive to this flavor of not self, this flavor of, oh, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. How do we do that and what's the, the feeling sense of that and what do we get out of that? And what I want to point out is that uh, this is probably already going on in your practice, that it's closer than you think. And I mentioned this when I was giving instruction about this, this uh, technique of, of noting, of labeling, because what's implied in labeling that it's, that it's not me. When I label thinking, remembering, planning, it's beginning to notice that that's the arising of, it's just an arising of an experience that then passes away. It's not me. It's not mine. It's just a thought arising. Oh, that's just a sensation arising and passing away. Oh, there it is. Anxiety, fear, interesting. It's like this. And have you felt, sometimes you can feel just a small shift around that when there's a little bit more space where it's just an experience arising rather than me. So I'm not talking about anything dramatic. I'm just talking about just a shift in perception. Oh, judging, interesting. That's all that is. That's one option. Or, damn it, I'm a judgmental person. I can't believe what a horrible person I am. <laughs> That's a drag. <laughs> and so it's this shift that, that we're allowing to, to begin to, to take hold. And as you might have remembered uh, this morning when Rebecca was talking about these kar karmic knocks, this is one of the key steps to begin to, to disidentify this quality of non-identification with, with these, these patterns that are arising. That's where the freedom is. This is the scene that frees the heart from this confinement. And this is why I think the, the noting, noting or noticing or seeing the component parts of experience is so helpful because it's deconstructing it to see that there's not a self there, to see that I don't have to claim ownership to it. It's just the unfolding, the flowing of experience. So that's one flavor of around not self. And at other times, when there's a sense of, you could say, being in the flow of experience, and maybe some of you have experienced this just a little bit in the in-between times or in the walking meditation or sitting meditation, where there's a sense of like being walked, like walking is just happening, or the unfolding of emotion is just kind of coursing through. It doesn't feel like you anymore. It's just noticing flow or being breathed. Have you noticed the shift where it feels like, oh, actually I'm breathing, and then, boom, you're in a different space where that actually feels different. 
some of the language that's been helpful for me is, is kind of t- two frames. One is the uh, the thickening of the self and the thinning out of the self. So this kind of being breathed or being walked a lot of times feels like the, the self is thinner. It's, 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 it's like transparent. And there's a kind of flow to experience. There's less suffering. And then there's when the self feels really thick. You ever have those sits where you're lost in the story? And have you noticed most of the stories, probably 99.9%, have something to do with you, the self. <laughs> Voila. Wow, this is what it feels like. It feels like this. The, the sense of self is so thick. Oh, and it feels different than when the self has thinned out some. So encouragement to start to become curious. What are your experiences when the, the self feels so thick? What's the flavor of that? What's the flavor of when the self has thinned out? The Zen master I practiced with, I I found it so helpful because he would uh, encourage us to be curious again and again about just noticing how the self appears and how it disappears. Again, the easiest place that I I, I can notice that is around story. When there's a story, it's about me and then there I am. A lot of times the self disappears often when, when mindfulness is a little bit stronger. There's just the noticing of experience. Just an encouragement to check this out. This is, this is what begins to shape the heart and mind in a different direction towards freedom. To begin to see this moment after moment. And I want to emphasize, these don't have to be dramatic experiences. Remember, just noting thinking gives a little bit of that space to disentangle from being so fixated on, a, on the self. And I, I might go much more into detail about really seeing this more in detail in, in, in uh, my next talk, but I never know what's going to happen with talks, but that's at least the aspiration now to, to take some more time with this. But that's just one side of the equation, being nobody, this noticing not-self. And what I point, want to point out is that there's also a place for a sense of self. This is quite important to have a, a strong sense of self. It gives a, a stability to take in, you could say, these destabilizing insights into the nature of experience. And the Buddha speaks to this. He's, at one point, he's having a conversation with Chitta, Chitta, the elephant trainer's son. And maybe just a aside, Chita, the elephant trainer's son, is, is one of these great characters in, in, the, in the Pali canon. And the reason I find inspiration from him is that, uh, so the story goes, he got um, ordained seven times and left the order six times. <laughs> so that means he got into practice, right? He was really into it and was like, I'm out of here. And got into practice, I'm out of here. <laughs> It's like, it's always nice because you know that feeling of really wanting to get out of IMS? (laughs) (laughs) And so I just want to point out, you're doing really well because if you haven't, some of you, probably most of you haven't even left once, right? It means you you still have six times to like leave and then come back. (laughs) And not only that, he eventually attained, attained full awakening, even though he was kind of wobbly at first. Isn't that inspiring? I get some inspiration from that. So in this uh, discourse, it's actually the, uh, it's in the uh, long discourses, I think it's the the Potapada Sutta. And they're having a conversation about the usage of this word self, in particular, talking about many different kinds of selves, but I I think it it really applies to this. Just to keep it simple, if we just think about it, about this word self. And Chita's going on and on about this word. And then the Buddha says, but Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. 
And I think this is the gateway into this whole arena. How do we utilize identity, utilize a sense of self without misapprehending it? Because there's a, a role for a sense of self, as I was pointing out, this, this teaching of conventional truth and ultimate truth. Self and identity, they're conventionally very important. But ultimately just a construct. And to remember that Nagarjuna talked about two truths, not just one truth. There's something true about the conventional world and knowing how to navigate that and utilize it. Because the sense of self is important for us psychologically as human beings. It can give a, a sense of stability. It sometimes clarifies differences that need to be clarified. And sometimes just merely putting it aside, things don't work very well. For example, I, I had a friend who was I was somebody I knew in my Zen days, and he lived in uh, this commune. And in this commune, you couldn't use the words I, me, or myself. I think you couldn't use the word no either. So <laughs> you couldn't say no. Any. <laughs> and uh, just so you know, the commune was extremely dysfunctional and <laughs> ultimately crazy. <laughs> They gave it a good go, though, in terms of that. So that might not be a way to really getting to not self in a liberating way. But there was a lot of sex and drugs, so maybe that was the direction to it. <laughs> Who knows? But I think for me, what I began to notice, and I noticed this in my practice, is that um, why the sense of self was uh, started to become important for me personally is that, that uh, in order to start to cultivate a positive uh, uh, regard for myself, really to start to see that I matter, that it's okay for me to take up space. And I, I actually, this is in my practice, I started to realize that this is what I needed to, to have time with, to work with. Because what I started to realize early on in my practice, and I think I'll just be honest with you, one of the appealing reasons of getting ordained, and I think one of maybe one of the, the things that, that drove that, I think there was some, definitely some wholesome, wholesomeness to it as well. But I, I, I was wanting to be invisible. And, and much of that was because that was a safety mechanism for me growing up, is, is that if I can be invisible, then I'm safe. And then being invisible started to become something that was really appealing, that there was a sense of safety to it. And I think my mind took this notion of not-self as pointing to that. Wow, this is a cool spiritual path that I can start to do. It's all about not-self, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking to be invisible, because then maybe I can feel safe. And then I missed something that was really essential is that I needed a strong sense of self in order to really have a sense of stability to really open up to this path and this practice. And I want to share with you a, a poem that exemplifies this process and also just give the so many different dimensions around the importance of a, a strong sense of self. And this is a, a poem by the, the poet May Sarton and I want to share a little bit about her because I think it gives a, a different sense to the words that she has in this poem. So May Sarton was, so she was in a same-sex relationship in the 1940s and 1950s. And to begin right there, to imagine being in a same-sex relationship in the 1940s and 50s in this, in this country being surrounded by the heterosexual norm, especially at that time in this country. And just bringing that to mind, of course, 
you could probably get the sense of how challenging it could be to really maintain a strong sense of self and actually not be invisible because it was a whole dominant culture screaming at one to be invisible when one is situated that way. And she wrote this poem during this time of her, in, in her life in the early 1950s. And when she began to openly write about lesbianism in, in the 1960s, her greatest fear is that it would destroy her career. So I just want to share with you the, the first lines of this poem. And, and the, poem, the title of the poem is, Now I Become Myself. Now... I become myself. It's taken time and many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you'll be dead before. Before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear? or love safe in the walled city? Ah, now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and density. It's so important to feel our own weight and density. Especially whether it be on the individual level, if there's individual hurts or injury injuries that feels like it's taken that away from us or has instilled this desire to be invisible or these other ways that don't allow us to claim that our own weight and density. Or maybe not only on the individual level, but the systemic level. You know, having a, an identity that's been marginalized, whether it be like May Sarton around sexual orientation or ability or age or race. Or how we situate ourselves in terms of gender. So important to take time to feel one's own weight and density. This is part of the spiritual path. This is what leads onwards. It's one of the two truths. And then on oppositely, so important, at least ethically, to feel our own weight and density in terms of the places of identity where we might be a part of a dominant group, whether it be having English as your first language or being white or able-bodied or middle-class or living here in the United States or being heterosexual or male. Because it keeps that question alive of how do you maneuver that weight and density in a way that's not ignorant to power imbalance or to difference. So that we can be here with a weight and, 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 and density in a way that's not harmful to ourselves or others. So this construct of, of a sense of self is so important because it allows us to, to feel that weight in a skillful way and it also can be utilized to reveal the dynamics of oppression that sometimes can go often, too often, uh, we can be blinded to when we, we have these identities that fit in some dominant group. This is this important of feeling our own weight and density.
how to begin to feel your own weight and density, how to cultivate actually being somebody, utilizing this construct, even here on retreat. So some of this is happening, you know, for those of you who are doing like a loving kindness practice or maybe a self-compassion practice, when we're bringing these, these qualities of, of the heart towards ourselves so that we can start to, to like ourselves, to actually value ourselves, to see that I matter in some way. I think this is how the practice of loving kindness has been so important for me, is to be able to inhabit that world more fully. And to claim myself in a wholesome way, to claim that construct that can be helpful in a wholesome way. And the Buddha speaks to this. He, he speaks to really claiming, appreciating the wholesomeness within ourselves. For example, he's giving this, these instructions on cultivating what he calls this equipment of the mind. He says, here, student, a practitioner, let's say they're a speaker of the truth. And then what they do is they think, oh, I am honest. And by thinking that, they gain inspiration in the meaning. They gain inspiration in the Dhamma. They gain gladness connected with the Dhamma. And it is that gladness connected with the wholesome that I call an equipment of the mind. Or they may be engaged in generosity and then they think, I'm one who engages in generosity. And then they gain inspiration in the meaning of that. They gain inspiration in the Dhamma. Gain gladness connected with the Dhamma. It is that gladness connected with the wholesome that I call an equipment of the mind. Isn't that interesting that that's a practice that the Buddha is recommending that we do? Which means that while you're here on retreats, you know, here we are, you're either following the, the five precepts or the, the, the eight precepts. And you're probably doing a pretty good job, right? We don't have to be perfect. It doesn't always happen that way. But, but do you take time just to appreciate that? Sometimes I think that, that we should have a month before the three-month retreat where we just take a time to hang out. And every day it's like, wow, this is so cool. Like, here's my ethical conduct. And it feels so good. Well, wow, one more day to go to bed at night to be like, oh, this is wonderful. Because what does your mind usually do? It's usually like mine. What does it think about? The things that you got wrong today. <laughs> but actually the Buddha isn't encouraging that in this teaching. <laughs> He's giving a teaching that stabilizes a sense of self in a wholesome way. A practice of gratitude or to, to actually savor your goodness because it can be dismissed and it's happening every day on this retreat. What a sad thing to think that a day can go by where that isn't appreciated. Because there's goodness in this room. And the Buddha is actually encouraging us to claim it by utilizing a construct of a sense of self. Just as we're using that construct in the loving kindness practice or a compassion practice or appreciative joy. I remember uh, learning about this from uh, my mentor that the, the I used, uh, started to teach with, Eric Kolvig, and when I began teaching retreats with him, at the end of the retreat, he'd turn to me and he'd say, Brian, we did a good thing. And I think the first time he said that, I said something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anybody knows Eric Colvin. He, he's, he taught more at Spirit Rock, but he, he's such like a, a sweetie. He's kind of like a teddy bear. But this time, it was one of the rare times he was so stern with me. And it was like he, he turned to me and said, don't do that. He said, you really need to take some time to really take that in. And it was such a shock. It was like, oh, wow, that's my habit, not to take in goodness. Can you notice tonight 
when you go to bed that you did a good thing today. And not to dismiss it like what my mind does. So that we can be somebody in this way that brings stability, that actually opens the heart, that leads to freedom. So this is this practice of being somebody and being nobody. It's about taking on both the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. As Nagarjuna says, without a foundation in the conventional truth, like what I'm just sharing right now, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. And without an understanding of the significance of the ultimate, really seeing how the self confines us, liberation is not achieved. Whereas uh, the, the great Indian sage uh, Sri Nisargadatta put, puts it, he says, love says I'm everything and wisdom says I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. So may our life flow between the two of these, really for the liberation of all beings. So let's sit for just a, a few moments here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.